Let's focus here. If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. And since you're up already, I'm going to read. I'll begin in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we just got done singing. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And so, Father, I pray that as I speak, as I preach, and as those in the audience here, we ask, Father, for you to blow on this place and move within hearts that Christ would be precious. that Christ would be supremely satisfying, that Christ would be the great value and treasure of our lives here, that we can actually sing that song and mean it. In Christ alone, my hope is found. And then, Lord God, I pray that we would live as we have been called to live, as a different, holy, separate, chosen royal priesthood. And I pray, Father, as well, as we hear the dreaded disaster awaiting those who will not trust in Christ, that it would cause us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys may be seated. <clears throat> the title of my sermon, it's a long one, so sorry. It's the preciousness of Christ and the uniqueness of Christ's people. The preciousness of Christ and the uniqueness of Christ's people. What I want to do off the bat is just give you an outline of, of Peter's train of thought as we're going through these two paragraphs, and then we're going to unpack it. And I, I want to state this from the get-go. Um, I'm going to challenge you today. This is not going to be uh, positive, encouraging K-love. This is not the MyBridge moment of the day or the verse of the day. This is going to challenge you. 
So I make no apologies about that. I, I want you to know I don't do this out of a critical spirit, but I'm asking myself the same questions and I'm wrestling with them and I want you to wrestle with them too. Because here's the deal, we have three speakers after me this week. Two from churches, one from uh, a ministry outside of Denver. And here's the facts. They don't know this place. They know some of you, but they don't know this place. And so out of an abundance of love for you in this school, I'm going to preach this way. And I'll be totally honest with you. When, when we went and talked with Gordon after uh, last chapel and, and the, the lot, as it were, fell to me so that I would be preaching the scripture to kind of catch us up, I had no clue what would transpire over the next 13 days. No idea. In fact, uh, I can't even see some of your faces. And so I preach with fear and trembling and that the way that I would handle the text first and foremost, is correct, and also that it's God-honoring. So, here we go. In, in poetry, uh, you have different rhyme schemes, A-B, A-B, A-A, B-B, etc. And what I'd like to do, just to kind of give you a, a clue as to how Peter uh, sets this all up, is give you sort of a rhyme scheme of 1 Peter 4. Chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So, I'll, I'll notate it this way. A, the preciousness of Christ, part 1. That's verse 4. B, the, pre the, sorry, the uniqueness of Christ's people, part 1. That's verse 5. A, the preciousness of Christ, part 2. That's verses 6. Through 7a. C, the misery of those who are not Christ's people. That's 7b to verse 8. And then lastly, the uniqueness of Christ's people, part 2, and that's verses 9 and 10. You're also going to see heavy use of the Old Testament in, in this passage, whether actually quoted in there or or allusions to the Old Testament, and I will try my hardest to weave those things in there, but time doesn't allow me to develop all of these thoughts. And so I'm going to give you the references as best as I possibly can, and I want you to be good Bereans out of Acts chapter 17, and I want you to do the homework on your own and check to make sure that what I'm saying is true and lines up with Scripture, because otherwise it doesn't matter. Just the bloviating opinions of a Bible teacher. Ideally, this would be a two-part sermon, uh, but here we are. So I'm going to follow the pattern of Pete, uh, Peter's thought, so please try to stick with me through this A-B, A-C-B pattern. And just as an aside, uh, I'm not going to have questions at the end for e-groups, and we might not even have time for e-groups, which is fine. This is mainly for your personal evaluation. So I'm going to have questions strewn throughout for you to think. And I, I challenge you to think. Take some time today and think. Self-evaluate. So let's go. Verse 4. We see, first and foremost, the preciousness of Christ, part 1. It starts with the phrase, as you come to him. Or, more literally, if you want to read it literally, coming to him. And, and based on the context, the hymn is Jesus. And so the first thing that Peter basically is getting at is, here's an assumption, and here's the assumption. You come to him. You are coming to him. It's a, it's a participle in the Greek. It means that there's an ongoing nature to the coming to him. So right off the bat, do you come to him? I'm going, to challenge, I'm going to challenge you with this. This is so important. Is there a desire in your life to seek him? To worship him? To visit with him? 
And I'm not talking about red hot. I'm, I'm overflowing. I'm on fire for Jesus, and I'm seeking him, and I'm worshiping him. Those sort of feelings ebb, and they flow. They come, and they go. I'm talking about the daily discipline of yearning and hungering for Christ. Is your relationship with Christ really real? If I were to ask your parents, what would they say about your relationship with Christ? If I were to ask your friends, would they say that Christ is precious to you? Because if you look at the text, Christ is exceedingly precious to the Father. So Peter continues. He's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Remember the context, folks, of this letter. Rejection. Persecution. People looking down on you. People looking down on this group of people, this, this group of elect exiles, because they trusted in Christ. And look at the depiction of Christ. He's a stone rejected by men. He's rejected. But in the sight of God, he's chosen and precious. And that is absolutely true. Christ was rejected by men. At one time, he fed close to 20,000 people. He healed many. He raised people from the grave. And how did people respond to God coming to earth? Crucify! We have no king but Caesar. You who would save others, save yourself. Come down from that cross, rejected by men. His back was ripped open by whips with little pieces of bone so that it would strip your skin off of your bones. He was hung on a tree, and he died most likely naked, a complete and utter spectacle. Oh, he was rejected by men. But in the eyes of God, Christ was chosen and precious. Mark that. Because in verse 6 and 7, we're going to come back to that. Off the bat, again, let me ask you a question. Is Christ precious to you? Is he? Because he is so very precious to God. The, the Greek word for precious, it, it has a, a feel of value or of treasure. The Christ is your treasure. The Christ, you value him supremely over all things. And I, I, just, I just pray, ONC, do you see? Do you see? Do you see Christ as supremely precious? Do you? Next, the uniqueness of God's people, part one. So, look back at verse four and see the word living stone, a living stone. As you come to him, a living stone, and then we're gonna need that for the next verse. So Christ is a living stone, but then you look at verse five, and it says this, you yourselves are like living stones, same Greek words, same exact Greek works, describing Christ, then look at what God is doing with you. You are being built up as a spiritual house into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Oh, track with me. Verse 5 is all about the uniqueness of Christ's people. Please don't hear me calling you a special snowflake. I don't mean it that way at all. Please see this for what it is. God is in the process of building a house. God is the builder, and you're the stones that God is using to build this house. Christ 
in verse 6 is the cornerstone of this house. Cornerstones uh, in old houses back then, uh, when Peter was writing, this, this would make a lot of sense to, to the readers. When you would build a house, the first stone you would lay is the cornerstone. And then from out there, you would then build the foundation. So the cornerstone is the most important piece of the house. So Christ is the cornerstone. He's the chief cornerstone. So the foundation then is built based on that cornerstone. And Ephesians chapter 2 talks about that foundation as the, the apostles and the prophets. And then here's the amazing thing is then the house goes up. And what Peter is saying is that you, the believing ones in the audience, you're being built up into this spiritual house. It's amazing. You, who count Christ as precious, you're that spiritual house, you're that holy priesthood, you're the one offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this little section right here oozes with Old Testament imagery. Just oozes with Old Testament. Here's what Peter is saying. In the Old Testament, you had the place where God dwelt, and it was the tabernacle at first, and then the temple. Okay? And that was the house in which God would dwell. And then the priests would be those who do the service inside the tabernacle or the temple. And what Peter is saying here is, you're the temple. And you're the priests. That's crazy. God makes his dwelling in you. Wow. And what's that spiritual sacrifice that you get to offer? You, yourself, all of you, all of you. Romans says it like this, we are living sacrifices. That's what we are. I'm a living dead man. You lay your life down on the altar and give yourself fully and wholly to God to do with you whatever he wants to do with you. That is being a sacrifice. So, two things I want you to see out of this, out of, out of verse 5. Number one, you have been called out of the world and are now the house that God is building. This is a fruit of the gospel. You get the greatest community the world has ever known. And it transcends fandom of sports teams. It transcends hobbies. It transcends the sports we play or the color of our skin or our ethnicity or whether you're a masker or an anti-masker. You are part of a community, and, and I don't see Mr. Gibb, but Mr. Gibb can attest to this. Even if you are in Kenya and you are around brothers or sisters in Christ, there is immediately a familial connection that goes deeper than any other connection in this world. Why? Because we're in Christ. So in short, folks, you belong. You have a community that is yours in Christ. And may I make an axiomatic statement? The church is completely essential in your life. The government might call it non-essential, which is an indictment of our churches. But the church is essential in your life. You need the church, and guess what? The church needs you. They need you. If we are a building of, of living stones, I can't just pull myself out like a big Jenga game and go do what I want to do. All right, here I am, hanging out over here by myself, me and my Bible, back here. Because I don't want to see you people, because you people annoy me. So it's me and my Bible, in a tree, by myself. No, you need the church, and guess what, folks? The church needs you. And this is going to step on your toes, and I don't care. If you can say with your lips, 
God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he bore the full weight of the wrath of God for me on my behalf. Thank you for giving me a righteousness that is not my own so that before you I am completely righteous. Thanks for giving me other believers in my life that you use to sanctify me and draw me closer to him. But I'd rather not go to church today because I'd rather go hunting. I got club volleyball. I got a baseball game. I need to watch the Chiefs. I'm troubled for you. If you have such a low view of church, I'm troubled for you. Secondly, your uniqueness is because of who you are in Christ. Now, please, don't you dare puff your chest up. Ugh, yeah, I'm so smart. I'm so great. I'm so awesome. No, but don't go to the other ditch and cower in a corner as Christians. Don't you dare. Why? Why don't you cower in a corner? Because you're Christ's. You're his. The Lord is my helper. Whom shall I fear? What can man do to me? Don't forget the context of the letter. The long hand of persecution and oppression is coming. And what a relief it is for those readers to read that they belong to a house that God is build, building and that the strongest person in the universe is on their side. <laughs> He's on your side. This, he defeated death. He conquered it. He's on your side. NC, do not fear the world. Don't fear the world. The most dangerous thing in this world are rowdy Christians who love their God, know their God, feast on their God. Laugh with joy because Christ is king and fight wherever you are against this godless world that hates Christ and, oh, by the way, hates you. Because if Christ is rejected by men, you think this world's going to love you? Don't forget who you are. And don't forget who Christ is and what the church is. Remember what Paul, Paul, sorry, remember what Jesus says to Peter. After Peter confesses that you are the Christ, the Son of God, Peter looks and in response to that says, in, on this rock, on this confession, on this gospel, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You need to understand this. Gates are defensive. You put them up around your city. And so what Christ has in mind and, and what this is saying is the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. The defensive gates of hell cannot prevail against the offensive, not offensive, offensive move of the church and the power of people who are sold out to Christ going against the very gates of hell. What Jesus is saying is go storm the gates of hell. Go storm them. You get to share the gospel to a lost and dying world. And God may use you to draw someone from darkness to the light of Christ. So here's my question for you to consider. Where do you see yourself fearing the world? Or fearing man? 
more than fearing God? Where do you see yourself compromising? Where do you find yourself at a fork in the road with regard to a moral choice? And you can go either way. Or worse yet, where do you find yourself already slipping and going down the wrong road? So that was verse 5 to verse 6. This is a quotation of Isaiah 28, 16. And back we go to the theme of the preciousness of Christ. So I want you to see the repetition, sorry. I want you to see the repetition between 4 and 6. Christ as our stone, Christ as chosen, elect by God and precious. So remember that repetition is used within Scripture to show emphasis. Peter didn't write his epistle on Word. He didn't write it on Google Docs. He didn't run around with his smartphone and using voice to text. He couldn't select things and make them all caps or bold. So what does an apostle do to show importance? You repeat yourself again. May I repeat myself again? May I repeat myself again? So let me repeat what Peter repeats. Christ is precious to God. And here's what's amazing. In the first verse of verse 7, first, sorry, first, first phrase of verse 7, it says this. So the honor is for you who believe. May I try and throw out a, a, a more literal translation. To you, therefore, is the preciousness, believing. So the idea is that Christ is precious to us in our believing. So I'm going to ask it again. Is Christ precious to you or is something else? I want to read something from a man named James Smith. It's an essay called Christ Precious. This is from 1861. Consider the fact. Jesus is precious to all believers. He is prized by them. They set a very high value upon him. He is enjoyed by them. Yes, there is nothing they enjoy so much he is an honor to them, and believing on him is an honor to them. Every believer values Christ. Let others think of him as they may. All who are taught of God think highly of him. They can never honor him as they wish. Amen. Nor enjoy him to their full satisfaction. Amen. I'm still sinful. Every believer feels their need of him. No weary traveler ever felt his need of rest. No hungry laborer ever felt his need of food. No drowning mariner ever felt his need of a lifeboat. As the believer has felt his need of Christ. Avoid, therefore, whatever weakens faith or interrupts its exercise and prize whatever strengthens it and makes it vigorous. If you do not have this faith, or if you doubt whether you have or not, cry mightily to God to send the Holy Spirit as the spirit of faith to produce or increase it in you. If you do not have high and honorable thoughts of Christ, if you do not prize him as the chief among 10,000, and altogether lovely, if you do not depend entirely on his precious blood and finished work for your salvation, whatever faith you may have is not saving faith, which is of the operation of God and to which the promise of salvation is made. Look well to it, therefore, that you have this faith, that you believe on the Son of God, that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and trust in him and love him accordingly. For whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And then Smith closes with the poem. Jesus is precious, says the word. What comfort does this truth afford? And those who in his name believe with joy this precious truth receive, to them he is more precious far than life and all its comforts are, more precious than their daily food, more precious than their vital blood. Not health, nor wealth, nor sounding fame, nor earth's deceitful empty name, with all its pomp and all its glare, 
can with a precious Christ compare. He's precious in his precious blood, that pardoning and soul-cleansing flood. He's precious in his righteousness, that everlasting heavenly dress. In every office he sustains, in every victory he gains, in every counsel of his will, he's precious to his people still. As they draw their journey's end, how precious is their heavenly friend. And when in death they bow their head, it is appointed once for a man to die, and then comes the judgment. And when in death they bow their head, he's precious on the dying bed. Nebraska Christian students, I just want you to see Christ as precious. He's more precious than any trophy or medal you will win. I'm 40, and maybe about 10 years ago, you know what I did with all my high school ribbons and trophies? I threw them out. Christ will never be worthy of throwing out. He's more precious than any job you will ever have. In fact, your job should be done to his glory. He's more precious than any fame or any glory you have. I'll never forget this. Tom Brady, after winning the Super Bowl, said, and I quote, is this all there is? He reached the pinnacle of pinnacles. Is this it? Christ is far more precious You who have your names on the back of t-shirts, those things will either be thrown out eventually or they will disintegrate over time. Instead, folks, only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And now we come to the hardest part of the text. Verse 7. I entitled this portion, The Dreaded Misery of Those Who Are Not Christ's People. Look at verse 7. The literal rendering is as follows. To those disobeying, and then there's two Old Testament passages. The first from Psalm 118, verse 22. The second is from Isaiah 8, 14. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And I want you to consider the corner of a desk late at night or maybe a coffee table or the corner of the bleachers. And if you try to cut the corner too quickly, uh, usually what happens is shin bone meets coffee table or thigh meets desk or, as I've seen happen every once in a while, rambunctious child meets corner of bleacher and boom, safe. And there goes all the popcorn and there goes the nachos and there goes all of that. As it is true for us today when it comes to corners, so too it was true for those in Peter's day. Just as the cornerstone sustains a house, so also a corner can become a hazard. Some people fail in going around a corner carelessly. So also some are built up into a spiritual house by the aid of Christ, while others stumble over him because of their disobedience. So the latter, those who stumble at Christ and perish, are who Peter is writing about now in verse 7. So look at what Peter says about them after the two citations. They stumble because they disobey the word. They refuse to be persuaded. They are hard-hearted, they are hard-headed, and quite frankly, they are blind. They might see, but they're blind. This is man's deepest problem. We are blind to the glory of God, and when light shines, we scatter like cockroaches. Here's the problem. We don't like being reminded of sin and judgment. We'd rather not talk about that. And when we don't talk about sin and judgment and wrath, we do not see a problem. And if we do not see a problem, we will not run to Christ for our solution. 
Or worse yet, if I think I can climb the greatest ladder of sand to get myself to heaven, then I will never look to the one who came from heaven to rescue me. Well, if this is you, I'm begging with you. I'm pleading with you. Here is Christ, and here is the Father, willingly handing over his own precious son to die on a cross so that the one believing in Christ might not perish but have everlasting life. Turn from yourself, turn from sin, and take the empty hand of faith and receive it, receive with it the great gift of salvation from Christ. August Hoplady wrote a hymn called Rock of Ages. The second and the third stanzas are, are these. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Oh, humble yourself before the great King of the universe and receive amnesty. And then comes a phrase that deserves a sermon in and amongst itself, as they were destined to do. May I put out for your consideration the idea of compatibilism. If you allow the Bible to speak, it speaks of God's absolute sovereignty. That he decrees all things, he works all things out to the counsel of his own will, and yet at the same time God is just and in holding men accountable based on the actions and desires of their heart. That's compatibilism. So let me ask you another question. How do you handle the word of God? They stumble over the word. They disobey the word. That's what those who hate Christ do. How do you handle the word of God? Is it a mere suggestion? Do you view it as some neat stories that are there to make you feel good about your situation? Do you read it, but then it's in one ear and then it's out the other? Are you mere hearers only and avoiding the doing? Or do you see it for what it really is? It is life-giving. It is life-sustaining. It is God-glorifying. It is man-humbling. It is sin-killing. It is obedience-creating. And it is the word of God to us. So in review, we've covered first the preciousness of Christ. Then we covered the uniqueness of Christ's people. Then we dove in the Old Testament. We saw again the preciousness of Christ to God and also to us. And then we talked about the misery of those who are not Christ's people. And finally, we will close with verses 9 through 10, which reiterates the uniqueness of Christ's people. So verse 8 ends with very, very, very bad news. Verse 9 starts with a glorious word in the face of bad news, but. You have COVID, but you're going to make a good recovery. You have cancer, but it's operable. Look at how Peter then describes those who are in union with Christ, and we'll unpack each one. Number one, you are a chosen race. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. Number three, you are a holy nation. Number four, you are a people of God's own possession. We're coming in on the close. I know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing tired eyes. I know. Suck it up, five, five or ten more minutes more, all right? Deep, deep breath in. Get as much oxygen as you can. Let's go. 
First and foremost, a chosen race. Same exact word, chosen, in verse 4 and verse 6. Now, I want to linger here for a minute. Look at me. In the exact same way that the Son of God is chosen by the Father, so also, you believers in Christ, you're chosen by the Father. And this isn't, oh, what's that guy in Simpsons? I choose to choose you. He has no power. But if God chooses you, uh, that's awesome. That's amazing. And you're secure. Please get that. You're secure. Remember, he's writing to people under persecution. You're chosen. You're secure. Yes! You're a royal priesthood. You are kingly priests. Just let your mind dwell on that. You are kingly priests. And you get to serve the great King of kings and the Lord of lords. When, when Mr. Gibb and I went to Thailand, Thailand has a, a king. And the king has this picture of himself all over the joint. He's all over the place. He's on, he's, he's up there real tall on a, on a big supermarket or a big mall. Just big, huge pictures of the king. And in the same way, the king of the universe, the king of this earth, has proclaimed to this earth, I am the king of this earth. And how does he do it? By sending you as his image bearers as his chosen ones, as his ro uh, royal priesthood to go and bear the very image of Christ to this world. Hallelujah. What, a, what, what an opportunity you have. Third, the holy nation. You're a holy nation. Holy means to be set apart. You are a set-apart nation. Look at me again. The greatest authority in this world is Christ. He's your king. Not Trump. Not Biden. Not Ricketts. Not your mayor. Feel, oh, feel the freedom this gives you. You are certainly in this world, but this world has no ties on you. If you are in Christ, and I have to confess, I've been anxious, I've been worried about election day. I've been way too interested what, with what's going to happen in three weeks. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. What can Biden do to me? What can Trump do to me? I serve the great king of kings, the great king of the universe. Men and women of Nebraska Christian, oh, be men and women of the truth. Declare the truth. Love the truth. Love Christ. Declare Christ. Christ is our only hope. Make it your aim to be a people so steeped in the word of God, in a biblical worldview, that when you bleed, you bleed Bible. Stop putting all your trust in this world and what this world thinks of you. They hate Christ. Fearing man. Stop trying to be just like this world. In the way that you act, in the music you listen to, in what you believe, in how you be behave, 
Don't, don't fear the same thing the world fears. Don't live like this world. Don't forget the reality. You are a holy nation. These are indicatives. This is what is. And now you as Christians, you just get to live into what Christ has called you to be. This is what is. You are a holy nation, a set-apart nation. Live like it. You are also a people for his own possession. Just let your mind dwell on that. What do you do with your possessions? I know I'm always like, ah, I don't have my idol with me. Ah, I need my idol. Oh, no, it's over there. I hope it's okay, Mr. Phone. Oh, no, my, my fifth appendage. I don't know. My, my appendage, my, my, I don't have my phone. Oh, no. I forgot my phone at home. I better go get in the car and go back and get it. I need, I need it. You care for your possessions, right? Imagine if after I, I let you all out of here, um, you're walking across campus, and, and, and you see me, and I'm in the parking lot, and I got my keys out. I don't have my keys, but I have my keys out, and I'm keying your car. And then I go, and I get my baseball bat out of my trunk, and I go Mike Trout all over your car. I'm bang, boom, boom. And I'm up there on the hood, and I'm just bang. You would rightly tackle me. Why? Because you care about your vehicle. You care about your possessions. And if you care for your possessions, how much more does the Father who chose you, who calls you a royal priesthood, who calls you a holy nation, how much more does he care about you? Oh, you have little faith. Peter closes the verse with a command. This is the only thing you are supposed to do. This is it. Here's your command. Here's your goal. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So here's your job for the rest of your life. Proclaim Christ. Proclaim the excellencies of Christ. I don't care if you're a pastor or you're a postman. I don't care if you're an engineer or you're an electrician. I don't care if you're a roofer or a repairman. You proclaim the excellencies of Christ wherever you are. And oh, by the way, in case you forgot, Peter closes with more Old Testament imagery, and this all comes from Hosea chapter 1. You can look on your own. But look at the glorious reversal. First, you are not a people. And just scan back up to verse 9. Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his glorious light. Here's darkness, you are not his people. Here's light, you are now God's people. Here's darkness, you had not received mercy. Here's light. You have received mercy. You are now God's people who have received mercy. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's what you get to proclaim to a lost and dying world who knows not Christ. So let me close with a refrain <clears throat> from a group called Beautiful Eulogy. This is the chorus to their song, Exile Dial Tone. We are in this world not of it, not to be scared and run from it. We shine light in the darkness. That's why he left us here. Calling out to all the exiles, the Lord will not forsake you. His kingdom can't be shaken. Hold strong. The end is near. We are the light of the world, so shine on. And the words of Samuel say, Christians, 
We are supposed to be the light of the world. We're not supposed to help our culture light itself on fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great light of Christ, the great work of Christ, the great worth of Christ, the great excellency of Christ, the great awesomeness of Christ, the great superlative of all superlatives is who Christ is. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill within us a desire to know him, a desire to seek him, a desire to see him as precious, more precious than anything this world has to offer. And then, Father, I pray in our loving of Christ, would you work within us a joyful, God-glorifying, soul-satisfying uniqueness as we are called out from this world to be different from this world, to be a holy nation, to be set apart, to be a chosen race, to be a royal priesthood, to be a people for your own possession. Thank you, God, that this is all of grace. This is all of Christ. This is all of you. This is all you're doing. This is all your power. This is all of you. And now, Lord, we get to partner with you in this grand, glorious design wherein you use sinful people who you have redeemed to go out into this world and change it by the power of the gospel and the Holy Spirit and to bring this world into conformity with Christ. And so, Father, I pray, oh, blow on this place, move in this place, make kingdom builders here, make people who are so sold out for Christ here, make young men and young women who are willing to go to the far reaches of this world and preach the gospel, who are willing to go across the street and preach the gospel, who are willing in whatever station you have them in to preach the gospel, in whatever station they are in to preach, we have no king but Christ. To your glory, to your honor, to your fame. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.